to the Bad Quaker Podcast, where liberty is our mission. Today is Friday, October 4th, 2013. This is podcast number 351, and my name is Ben Stone. A quick announcement, as you've been hearing me talk about, Bitcoin, not bombs, needs your help to hoodie the homeless. Mass Appeal Link has offered a great deal on 324 discounted orange hoodies that will be distributed to the homeless in San Francisco. We have until the end of October to raise 47 Bitcoin needed to reach our goal, and we're calling on the Bitcoin community to help make this happen. And, by the way, we're about a, uh, about a quarter of the way there right now. Uh, so you can pledge contributions to the Bitcoin starter campaign, you can purchase a Bitcoin Not Bombs t-shirt, or you can donate to Bitcoin Not Bombs directly. Every t-shirt sold is priced to pay for one hoodie to keep someone warm this winter. So go to bitcoinnotbombs.com and help us hoodie the homeless. Now, I also wanted to mention a special thanks to all those who donated. In September, we had several of our regular donators that stepped up and helped out in September, and we really want to thank them for it. Also, there was anonymous donations that came through Bitcoin and through our Bitcoin 2014 campaign. And uh, we really appreciate those, and we appreciate the help moving towards paying for uh, 2014, another year of keeping the show on the uh, on the um, internet. And I also want to mention the folks over at the forum. the uh, The forum itself to get onto the Bad Quaker forum is free. There's no charge for that. You can get in there and interact and see almost the entire forum uh, for free. All you have to do is set up a, a member, a, you know, identity and you can go through that. It's really easy. Um, and if you choose, if you want to support the Bad Quaker, uh, website on a monthly basis, the easiest way to do it, because we've tried to do things through PayPal and it's very cumbersome and they want to charge us a lot of money for it, but you can go over to the forum and set up a membership at the forum for free. And then if you click on the, um, the, the paid section of that, you can, you can, uh, it's like $4 a month and you can, or you can set it up for any higher amount if you'd like to. And, uh, and you can become a member there, a paying member, a supporting member of the forum at $4 a month or however much you want to make it out for. And that way it can be reoccurring. You don't have to do it over and over. So uh, without too much emphasis on all that, we we really appreciate the forum members and we appreciate the supporting members and all those in September that renewed their, their uh, supporting membership. We appreciate all of those, along with the donors and the uh, Bitcoin donors as well. Now, uh, David Gumpert was kind enough to allow me to record a phone call between us, and so that's what you're about to hear, the phone call between myself and David Gump- and author David Gumpert. Thank you very much for listening today. Uh, with me today is David Gumpert. You might know David's work from the Wall Street Journal or from the Harvard Business Review or from the seven books on uh, small business and entre- entrepreneurship 
But today I'm going to be talking to David about his newest book, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Food Rights. It's subtitled The Escalating Battle Over Who Decides What We Eat. And it's got a wonderful forward by Joel Salatin. Uh, David, welcome to the Bad Quaker Show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here, man. Now, one of the things that stands out about your book is that it's, um, it, it almost reads, it's very readable. It's like a novel type, except it's real. It's, it's talking about real people, uh, real life stories of the actual people that are on the battle lines in this fight that we're facing. Yeah, it, it is. They are real people. And, um, uh, I mean, because it's, uh, there, there, I actually cover seven farmers who encountered problems with the, with the, state government agencies or the federal government, and uh, I think what makes it read somewhat like a novel, as you suggest, is that the fact that they're all connected, and so it's, um, uh, the, the, the book has a kind of a beginning, a middle, and an end, and uh, by virtue of the fact that um, these, these uh, assaults on the farmers you know, were and are coordinated by the um, U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, and, and state agriculture agencies. And you kind of have an insight into the thinking of these what we might call nanny regulators. Um, tell us what what you what you feel is going through their mind or what their motivations are. Well, I think there are, there are a few things going through their minds, and, um, and and it's not all always what's going through their minds. It's kind of often you know what they're ordered to do. And so, by by their superiors, um, and so, uh, it, but uh, the people uh, carrying out this uh, assault, the crackdowns, uh, they they say they're motivated by concerns about safety, food safety, and um, uh, so uh, they are just trying to quote, protect us against uh, potentially unsafe food. Uh, the the only problem with that kind of excuse is that uh, n- none of the farms in question here that they tried to close down really had an immediate food safety problem at the time they were there they went after them um, so uh, uh, there, there's really um, that, that that particular excuse doesn't hold up uh, so that you, you, you you kind of ask yourself okay well what else is going on now they they say that it's also a matter of enforcing um, regulations around retailing and around other kinds of permits that uh, that food sellers are supposed to have. But uh, all the people involved in, in my book are, are people who are selling food privately, and uh, uh, they're selling food to, to small groups of of, of um, Members who are members of a food club, members of a herd share uh, or cow share arrangement, so um, they aren't in the in the public sphere, which is what retailing laws are supposed to cover. Um, so they aren't uh, really involved in traditional retailing as such. So uh, it's you know, it's, it's a, you have to wonder what else is going on, I, and that that's the part that. Um, is uh, a little trickier to fathom. I mean, they won't talk about this, but uh, certainly there's, there seems to be evidence of, of corporate pressure on the uh, regulators to crack down on, on the small guys. And that's partly because uh, 
the the the, 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 the growing number of, of food clubs and herd shares and uh, and, and actually uh, an increase in, in in small farms in some areas of the country is um, is a threat to uh, to big corporations because uh, people have become disillusioned with the uh, factory food system. They 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 become concerned about all the revelations about antibiotics and about GMOs and, and hormones and all the other things that, that are uh, mixed into our food um, and as well as the processing that goes on. So they're looking for alternatives and, and, and many uh, people are, are, are congregating more at the small farms that they um, have heard about from, from friends and neighbors and um, in, in, in hopes of obtaining uh, good, clean, nutritious food, and um, that's not uh, adulterated uh, as such. Um, so that, that's so those are some of the things that are kind of underlying all this. I often hear uh, you, you hear this a lot whenever there's any kind of political intrigue. You hear the phrase "follow the money." And whenever you're investigating something like this to try to find motives, that's often, you know, that's often the most obvious, maybe uh, the most obvious path to to see what the source of things like this is. But I, I think there's another aspect that comes in, and that is uh, follow the power, because like you were mentioning, there are specific corporations that are in the industrial farming uh, sector that are are having their 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 segment of the of the market threatened by by these more healthy foods, and uh, so so it's not hard to see that the money is a motivation there. But then when it goes to the political side, we have this issue of follow the power, and a lot of politicians have learned over the years that their power is based on the money that comes from those corporations. Right. And, uh, rather than their loyalty to what you know, we're told that they have voter loyalty. Well. You know, really, I, I think I suspect their their loyalty is more towards the corporate's money than the than the loyalty of the voters. Well, I, I'm not sure it's a matter of loyalty. It's, it's often, uh, I think, more just pragmatism. Um, we had a case just recently, uh, I think it about six or eight weeks ago, where the governor of Maine vetoed. Uh, legislation that would have legalized uh, uh, direct sales of raw milk by small farms, by very small farms, and uh, uh, this law was was passed because um, you know, a lot of the number of main towns have passed food sovereignty laws, and those have run into some uh, court challenges. And so, I think that to, to get some clarity, the legislature had passed. Uh, uh, this law that allowed uh, private sale of, of raw milk by small farms, and the governor, uh, Governor LePage of um, Maine, had indicated he was very supportive of um, of, of small farms, and um, he had indicated that he would be supportive of something that the legislature passed that was similar to uh, what the a neighboring state, New Hampshire, has done in this area. And uh, he, he, when it came, and it turned out that the, the law that Maine passed was actually probably um, a little more restrictive than what New Hampshire has. 
for for various reasons. But um, when, it, when when push came to shove, uh, the governor vetoed that legislation. And it turns out uh, he's just uh, getting ready to to launch a, a reelection campaign. And um, uh, I, I think it's, it's you know he obviously didn't talk about his reasons beyond you know he, he had some some um, very small concerns about the, uh, the 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 fact that this law allowed farmers to sell raw milk at um, uh, farmers markets, which is a the same as what happens in New Hampshire, but um, he all, all of a sudden he had this concern about uh, about that. It was this was an excuse, and he's uh, he's based the fact he's running for re-election means that he's going to need money, and uh, he, he obviously made a decision that uh, it was it was uh, it was kind of easier to uh, or, or less problematic to tick off. Uh, Voters who support this uh, raw milk legislation than to tick off uh, big campaign donors. I'm sure he got the word before this, you know, just as this legislation was coming up, that there were those in the in the uh, healthcare arena and those in the uh, corporate uh, food arena that wouldn't uh, look favorably on him signing this, and that that, that would cost him campaign contributions. And so um, I don't think it was a matter necessarily of having loyalty to those people, but rather um, uh, doing what he needed to do to, to raise money to run for re-election. And um, uh, so I think it's just assuming that he could buy enough ads to kind of counteract any negative feelings he had uh, stirred up. It turns out he, he stirred up quite a lot of negative feelings, and it's not clear whether he can buy enough votes to to make up for all the votes he lost, because he got a fair amount of attention when he when he did what he did, um, and, and hopefully more politicians will begin to get that message. I mean, we've we've had about four or five uh, cases just like this where our governors have um, have taken legislation, most least mostly about raw milk, and that have been passed by wide margins in the legislature, and uh, and, and at the last minute vetoed the legislation. And um, it seems pretty clear that it's, it's, it's similar kinds of concerns. It's concerns about um, you know, that, that they or their party are going to be able to raise uh, the campaign funds they need from these big corporations. Now, I'm going to make an assumption here because uh, I haven't actually followed the the uh, uh, politics for Maine, but I'm assuming that that's a, a progressive or, or a person who considers themselves a progressive governor. Am I making the right assumption there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you are, and, and Maine is a progressive state that way. I mean, they they have uh, pretty liberal laws already in, on the books uh, for um, uh, sale of, of uh, unpasteurized milk, and they allow it to be sold at retail. But they they insist on everyone go through a permit process that can be uh, cumbersome and expensive, and um, uh, so um, they were trying to. The, the, the legislators were trying to give smaller farmers a break so they don't have to, to um, necessarily comply with all kinds of regulations that, that bigger farms have to comply with in order to be able to sell uh, small amounts of raw milk. So, um, but yeah, there, there is a. I think the, the, the governor had indicated he was, you know, very supportive of small farms, and um, he had done a number of things to, you know, to, to you know, he's certainly talked a lot about how he, how he supports small farms and, and 
uh, so yeah, he 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 was um, yeah supposedly a pretty progressive guy. Now, when we're talking about raw milk, uh, I think most of my audience understands the importance of of raw milk as opposed to processed milk. But uh, just give me your opinion and sort of an overview as to why you think uh, there is such a movement towards preferring raw milk rather than the processed stuff that they that they feed us. Well, I think it, it's it's just it's, it's uh, the same uh, kinds of things that are happening for other foods. But basically, what's going on is there's a, a tremendous amount of, uh, of, of growing disillusionment. Uh, and unhappiness and concern and worry about the uh, the conventional food system and then the factory farms that, that feed the country, uh, feed much of the country. And um, people are worried about uh, the fact that they look around and they see uh, exploding rates of um, diabetes and asthma and Crohn's and all kinds of chronic conditions and... Um, and, and they, they, they have decided, and I think rightfully so, that food has something to do with all this and probably a significant amount to do with all this. So, um, uh, and so there, there, I think there, there, um, there's a loss of confidence in the conventional food system and people are, are seeking, um, other, other sources and, and they're seeking other kinds of foods and, and what you necessarily find in the, in the, um, Factory food system. So they are uh, one of those foods is raw milk, and we, and I think it's it's, it's kind of the it, it's our first processed food when you come down to it, um, and it's, it's it's processed by virtue of the fact that it's heated, and then it's um, uh, uh, kind of shaken around to homogenize it, uh, shaken very strongly, and. And it's also um, a lot of people don't realize this, but it's kind of fraction, it's fractionated. I think is the word. It's uh, even when you buy whole milk, uh, whole pasteurized milk that's in, in the um, supermarket, it's not necessarily the milk as it came from the cow that was just as applicable. But it's it's milk that's lost a, a good amount of its cream, and uh, because it's 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 supposed to, it only has to have. Uh, I think it's Two or two and a half percent uh, butterfat, and a lot of milk has uh, five, six percent butterfat, and so um, that and then and that's that is taken out for economic reasons um, because that that uh, that cream butterfat is used then to make butter and to make uh, um, whipped cream and uh, cheese and all kinds of other things that um, add uh, profits to the, uh, to the processors. So um, I think there's just a lot of, uh, of uh, disillusionment about uh, about what's coming out of these factory farms, and then of course then people have to worry you know, worry about the fact that these uh, um, the animals were fed uh, antibiotics in their food, and and uh, in some cases hormones, extra hormones, and um, I don't know you know the feed is often instead of the cows cows mostly don't graze on pasture anymore. They're fed uh, feed that isn't necessarily intended for them, but it's feed that uh, uh, often contains um, corn and soy and, and often and, and not just uh, uh, you know, 
good corn and soy, but it's often GMO corn and soy. And so people are worried about you know, GMO ingredients getting into their into their food. So um, you know, you have a lot of things going on that are that are just uh, worrying people more and more. They're, they're they're worried about what they're giving their kids, and they want to give their kids nutritious food. And so um, uh, raw milk is a is a natural, unprocessed food, and um, and, and there's there's growing evidence. Uh, people are beginning to recognize that it can be produced safely. Um, there have been some. There, it has an unfortunate history, but it, it, it when when um, handled correctly uh, by farmers who are committed, it, it it can be produced safely, and it is produced safely. Mm-hmm. And we have uh, it's possibly as many as uh, by one USDA survey estimate, uh, 9 million, 10 million people a day drinking raw milk. And while that, that, if that many people can drink raw milk and, and, and almost uh, you know, no illnesses, then something must be working. You, uh, you were involved in the uh, Harvard Food Law Society's debate back in 2012, and I want to encourage the listeners, uh, I'm going to put a link in today's show notes to that. Uh, there's a YouTube video of it. And uh, folks, be sure and get over to badquaker.com, hit that link, and watch the YouTube video of that uh, Harvard Food Law Society debate. And uh, and and really, if you're not familiar with the raw food argument, it's it's worth taking a few minutes and learning. I heard the other day, uh, and, and David, maybe you can comment on this. I heard the other day a person made the the offhand comment that. Essentially, low-fat milk is pretty much, from a chemical point of view, it's pretty much just sugar water. It has very little real nutrients other than just being sugar water. Yeah, I mean, there's not too much uh, in skim milk or very low low-fat milk, um, uh, and especially after it's been zapped. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure what what's left. Uh, I think the other thing that's going on with with milk, and uh, actually a lot of dairy products, is they're not just pasteurized uh, at the, you know, the, the um, traditional way. They are ultra-high temperature pasteurized. So what that involves is, is instead of, I think it's 165 degrees for um, for maybe a, a half a minute or a minute, but it goes up to it goes up to a much higher temperature and um, basically has the effect of, uh, of eliminating even more of the enzymes and, and good bacteria in the milk, and the reason that's done is because um, it, it's, it allows milk to travel for further and to stay out on the shelves longer. It's all for economic reasons, but um, it, it just um, uh, denatures the milk even more, and uh, and um, so yeah, you're getting uh, you know, I don't know sugar water or just white white liquid, <laughs> you know like getting expensive water. <laughs> uh, now, you also have a, since we're on this topic of raw milk, you also have a book that's called The Raw Milk Revolution Behind America's Emerging Battle Over Food Rights, and I'll put a link in today's show notes for that one, too. Um, it, you know, it, it seems like, not just with milk, but it just seems like so many of the the food, um, the, the, the major manufacturers of food, it seems like they're going towards 
uh, more bulk and less nutrition, and that's kind of what we see with the milk. It's they want they want you know to put out more and more of it. You get a super size of this and a giant one of these, and and maybe you know the calories might be higher, whatever, but the actual nutritional value is not as good as a smaller amount of something that's raw or something that you know an egg, for instance. I, I see these commercials on on TV where they brag that their chickens. Are, uh, are vegetarian chickens. And I think in my mind, anybody that buys that story has never seen what chickens really like to do because they like to eat bugs or, or mice or exactly. spiders or, or yeah, yeah, exactly, uh, small snakes, anything they can get. A, you know, the chickens are vicious. Yeah, yeah. And that makes great eggs, too. Oh, absolutely. You can see the difference in the, the yolks and then the, um, uh, the shells. Uh, no, no question about it. I'm, I'm a big fan of good chicken, uh, good good eggs, and it's it's not hard, easy to find good eggs because you don't find them in the supermarket. They're all they're almost non-existent in the, any supermarket. Even Whole Foods is not. Uh, they they say they have uh, they, they have they have they have some eggs that they say are pastured, but I've tried them and they just aren't the same as what you get from a farm where they're really letting the chickens out. You stay hunting back out and pasture. Uh, and eating, you know, eating bugs and worms and and, and some grass and uh, along with the feed, uh, and uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's a huge difference. I've had a limited amount of experience seeing some of the, um, you know, the factory farms where they uh, where you know pigs spend their whole life and never touch dirt. They spend their whole life on yeah. concrete yeah. or. Uh, and chickens the same way is very common. They spend their whole life in a tiny cage that's just big enough to to essentially stand in and, and peck food that's handed to them. And it's, you know, to me, uh, it's very cruel. It's a very cruel way of feeding America. But it, and I can't help but to believe that there has to be repercussions to that. Any any kind of what I see as cruelty like that can't be the best way to do it. And the practical outcome of this is that, no, it's it's not the best way. Cattle walking around in the rain and getting cold and, and being in the sun and eating grass and eating things that are not grass, eating just whatever it finds in a pasture, produces better meat, better milk, um, you know, better hides, everything uh, is better that way, and but yet yeah. that's not the way corporate uh, farms are run. We have to understand what the corporations are about. It's not, in, and it comes not only just when it comes to food, but anything, any products uh, that, that that our services are produced. Their challenge is always to figure out ways to um, lower their costs and increase their prices. Now, with food. Um, there, there, there's uh, we've become accustomed to cheap food and ever cheaper food. So what they're what they're trying to do is always find ways as as much as possible to reduce the uh, uh, the costs. And what that means is they're always um, either trying to cheapen the uh, the feed they give to, to the animals, or um, uh, you know, crowd them more, or give them a fine antibiotics that fatten them up more quickly. Um, but uh, it, it's, this is the kind of um, uh, you know, priorities that they have. That that, that um, uh, and, and so because they're they're reporting to their shareholders and they want to report increasing profits. And so um, 
it's it's the old saw though. In the end, you you get what you pay for. So when they, I saw eggs somewhere recently. I think in one of these gas station stores or something selling for ninety nine cents a dozen. And people probably, you know, people say that. Well, wow, what a deal! But you know, you, you're getting um, you're getting what you pay for, and and you, like you, not only are you getting low quality nutrition nutrition wise, and um, but you're, you're getting uh, something that, that comes from animals that have been very badly treated, and um, uh, which is just adds a whole another layer of um, you know uh, of uh, negativity to the whole thing. Um, you know, so I mean, I I I, 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 I like to tell people when I talk about this because people have a real hard time with this. They're, they're so, we've been so conditioned to um, you know. A, a, Always be looking for the cheapest food, the best buy, um, the lowest prices, and and uh, we we just. Um, uh, but I, I I think in the process we forget that um, we're dealing with uh, uh, stuff we put into our bodies, and so we're really dealing with our health here. And I mean, I just you know I think uh, it. It's, it's the kind of thing, you know. Well, if, if, wouldn't you be willing to spend a little bit more, if, you know, to protect or to improve your health? Or, or let me put it this way: wouldn't you, wouldn't you be concerned about putting stuff into your body that might hurt and damage your health? And you know, when you put it that way, people can kind of begin to understand it a little bit more. But um, it's real hard because you have to undo uh, so many years and years of conditioning that people have been uh, subjected to that. And and, and and I think a lot of people are because of that conditioning, because they they they, they really don't want to think that um, uh, that that there's a that there's a cause and effect. I mean, to, to many people, we, we've been part of what we've been taught is food is food is food, and you know the the, the ninety nine cent the, a dozen egg is the same as the you know four fifty a dozen eggs you buy direct from a farmer that that that, that lets the chickens out and. Um, and uh, pasture and really cares for them and treats them humanely. Um, that, that, there, that there is a difference, and uh, so it, it's a it's a very uh, it's a big it's a, it's a tough battle to kind of get uh, to get past. Another way that um, you know that uh, small farms are being attacked is through the constant changing of the laws state by state when it comes to feral pigs and how, uh, you know, what what farmers would call heritage breeds or heirloom breeds, heirloom breeds, um, the state legislators are referring to as feral pigs. And I know in, in some areas, I know in the south, down in uh, Tennessee and Georgia and all the way into Texas, feral pigs are a real serious problem. But in some states like Michigan and even down into Kentucky, um, private farmers who have uh, who have heritage pigs that were very expensive to get and very expensive to keep healthy and and you know to raise them right and and try to develop the market for them are now seeing those pigs just being shot and killed because the state government has decided to reclassify them as feral pigs and and. Uh, and they're no more feral than my dog that runs around the house. But, right. You know, right. Right. It, it's just criminal. Yeah. It, well, I said this 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 situation is um, really going on um, most aggressively in Michigan, and there's a farmer there by the name of Mark Baker, 
who is fighting the state of Michigan. Um, and Michigan is, is kind of a big, uh, turned itself into kind of the, uh, the test case for other states around the country. And they passed a regulation uh, called the Invasive Species Order. And um, uh, basically any, any pigs uh, that, are, um, that, that have any of about 18 or 20 characteristics uh, uh, are considered feral, even though um, they, that the meat they produce is, is highly prized and, um, by, by, by uh, individuals who care about their food. Um, and uh, so uh, you have this situation of basically any any uh, any pigs that, that that are different from the ones raised by the factory farms are considered illegal. And the, the, the state has gone after uh, farmers like Mark Baker and, like as you suggest, uh, either shot their pigs or, or in his case, they they actually hit him. They, they not only tried to shut his farm down, but they hit him with a seven hundred thousand dollar fine. Uh, for defying the state's order. Now, he went to court and has challenged them, and the state moved to dismiss all the charges, and a judge has just recently, in the last few weeks, said, no, um, I'm not going to dismiss all the charges. Uh, we're going to have a, a trial about some of these charges. So um, he is uh, hes going to be, again, his day in court. Uh, I'm not sure exactly when, but because the court system moves very slowly, but in the meantime... He doesn't have to pay the fine, and he's um, he's raising pigs again on a, on, 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 a, on a limited basis. But I think um, I'm not sure what the exact uh, uh, you know uh, um, regulations are, or um, you know that. Uh, but he is able to uh, do more. He, he was basically unable to to, to sell his, his pigs or meat. And I, I think now he can uh, do it on, on some kind of a, a limited basis until the trial takes place. And um, uh, it's not, you know, it's not clear if the trial will be a jury trial or a judge um, overseeing trial. But uh, we've seen in other cases uh, in other states where juries tend to be more sympathetic toward farmers than the judges are. So. Um, uh, it'll be interesting to see how it develops because uh, the Michigan case is, uh, or the Michigan situation is one that other states are watching closely. And if Michigan get, Michigan gets away with what they're doing, of, of, of basically um, making all these heritage breeds illegal, why then um, other states are going to get uh, take that as approval or as encouragement, and they're going to be doing the same thing. You know, I can't help but to think of that old that old uh, f- uh, saying about you know the the about the Nazis how first they came for uh, this group and I said nothing because I wasn't part of that group and then they came for that group and I didn't say anything and and eventually it comes well then they came for me it was too late to do anything about it right, and I right. think I think people should realize when their rights are being chipped away like this, even you might say, well, I don't drink raw milk, or I don't, uh, you know, I, 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 grocery store eggs are fine with me, or I don't care if it's feral pigs or not, or, or whatever their statement might be. But you have to remember that, the, that liberties are lost a little chip at a time, and they're always much easier to lose than to gain back. 
And that's what we're seeing with these farmers. Um, you know, yeah. it, could, it could be uh, Heritage Seeds next for, you know, or, or uh, it could be uh, even gardens or what we're seeing with lemonade stands. I mean, that's just... Yeah, they come after lemonade stands and church suppers and uh, um, bake sales and stuff like that. Um, yeah, what you say is, a, is a, an important point. I mean, there are people out there who say, well, you know, I, I'm just... Uh, I'm a vegetarian. I'm a vegan. I don't really, uh, you know, I don't really um, need to worry about this stuff. Uh, in fact, they shouldn't. They shouldn't be, you know, eating meat and drinking milk. Anyways, it's 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 bad for the environment and it's uh, cruel to the animals and all this other stuff. And uh, the, the, the 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 thing they don't realize is they are coming for them next. Uh, and quite literally. Um, there's something called the Food Safety Modernization Act that was passed uh, by Congress in late 2010 and signed into law by President Obama in 2011. gives the U.S. Food and Drug Administration uh, vast new powers over um, food producers uh, in general, but farmers in particular. And um, any farmer who does anything in terms of Packaging or processing, and by processing I mean just you know washing and and um, and uh, packaging up uh, or cutting up or whatever food or vegetables uh, can be um, as it becomes a food producer subject to the FDA, and um, they are in the process of, of determining the exact rules. That's why people haven't heard that much about it. It's taken them a long time. It's it's, it's a little like. Uh, Obamacare, uh, in that the, the law is very um, complex, and uh, of writing all the regulations to kind of spell out the the the, uh, the enforcement, it has taken a long time. And, and there there have been hearings, or, or I don't know what they call them exactly, but there have been all these. Um, uh, they're like uh, congressional hearings uh, set up by the FDA and, and around the country. People are, are supposed to be able to quote comment on the FDA regulations and what they have in mind, and um, uh, of course, say they can decide. They, they really make the final decision. They can, it's kind of like you, know, you go to your, to, you, know, you go like uh, um, uh, pawns used to go to the, their kings and uh, and go to uh, and, and get beg in front of the king for some kind of um, special treatment or some kind of consideration. That's kind of what you have here with these FDA hearings. But um, when these new regulations come online, which will be probably early next year, um, they're going to have uh, a lot. They're, they're going to have a lot of impact on uh, fruit and vegetable growers in particular. And um, I'm afraid those, those people who have been kind of sitting around saying, "Well, you know, this, I don't have to worry about this milk and meat stuff and this egg stuff because, because of what I do," they're going to have their own um, version of this crackdown, and um, they're, they're going to find that the FDA is not very much fun to work with, and um, also not very respectful of farmers or farming or food in general. So I, I, I predict that this is going to be a very difficult um, situation and more of what you're, you're kind of uh, spreading of the dragnet, as it were. And um, it's uh, where, where they, because this, this, this new law just gives them the, the power to um, 
to come onto farms uh, or go into any food producer and would go through their books, do inspections without any cause. Now, they used to have to have some cause uh, before. There used to have to be an outbreak of illness, for, for example, or some kind of some um, uh, evidence that there of of, uh, of unsanitary conditions. And now they can just uh, they can just go and do it, whatever they want, and they can target specific farms and farmers that they don't like, and um, uh, they they. Uh, uh, they they will have uh, be able to uh, they'll have regulations regarding farming which they've never had before um, whether um, you know the, the, the nature of compost on a farm or the, 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 what they consider to be the water quality or the crop rotation practices all these kinds of things will now come under their scrutiny and it's going to be uh, it's going to be um, and, uh, really it could be a, a very um, difficult uh, situation. Let me uh, stop us here and break and throw in a commercial. And folks, stick with us, and we'll be right back with more about food safety and food rights. Folks, there's only a finite supply of gold and silver in the world. However, politicians can print paper on a whim forever and ever. Hedge yourself against inflation and a volatile stock market by purchasing gold and silver bullion from Amagai Metals. As inflation gets worse, it will become more difficult to buy gold and silver. So secure your financial freedom today by visiting amagimetals.com. That's A-M-A-G-I-M-E-T-A-L-S dot com. Or you can give them a call at 1-800-882-8496. That's 1-800-882-8496, where financial freedom is yours. And be sure and tell them badquaker.com sent you. Need to talk to people in a secure manner? Liberty Private Network sells phones that will work over any good Internet connection and give you military-grade encryption for calls that cannot be tapped. Great for lawyers and clients, business people with trade secrets, or just ordinary folk who don't want their love talk spied on by some scumbag from the central scrutinizer. Call 516-TLK-SAFE on your non-secure phone and tell them the Freedom Fiends sent you. That's 516-TLK-SAFE. Do you have an Amazon account? If you don't, let me encourage you to set one up. Setting up an account is free and it's easy. Amazon has great prices and in most cases you can avoid paying sales tax. Plus, if you're careful and lump your purchases together, you can even get free shipping. And Amazon has almost anything you can think of Plus, it's safer and cheaper than driving all over town. When you buy stuff, if you follow the Amazon link at badquaker.com, Amazon will give badquaker.com a tiny portion of the purchase price. It won't cost you any extra, but you will be supporting this podcast. Thank you. And thanks for sticking with us through the commercial break. I'm Ben Stone with David Gumpert, and we're talking about um, food rights, food quality, uh, health in general, and uh, David, before the break, um, we were kind of talking about how it these things are affecting people not just you know not just the meat eaters, not just the farmers, but also uh, different segments of society. And one group that uh, it may not be so obvious, but uh, they call themselves foodies, and they're people who are really specializing in high quality 
and specialized food, different uh, really high-end foods. And you see a lot of this on each of the coasts, on the East Coast and on the West Coast specifically, like around New York and San Francisco. A lot of those people um, are really getting into these really gourmet foods and and, um, and high-quality specialty foods. And the some of the diners are going underground in little, uh, little quiet, unlicensed, uh, you know, meeting in homes and meeting in, in places that are out of the way. And some of the highest quality chefs in the United States are involved in this kind of stuff. And they have to do it like this underground because the regulations on them in the rest, restaurant industry are just out of control. And so we're seeing the same thing. In uh, in the restaurants, as we're seeing in the in the um, uh, in the farms. Yeah, I've I've heard about these these uh, these uh, private uh, uh, dining groups. So, um, um, and uh, it sounds pretty cool, actually. I mean, it's uh, uh, I, I think you're right. It's these are a response uh, to um, what uh, I. I, I I think some chefs are experiencing with over-regulation and, um, uh, you know, regulators on steroids, as it were. And so um, uh, I think it's, uh, I think, though, it's also a reflection of, um, of desire by, uh, by people to access really good food. And I think uh, these... Um, uh, these chefs are, are often buying their food directly from farms and that aren't necessarily going through regulation. You know, I, I, part of what's um, uh, what's happened in in this uh, whole food arena is, is that uh, the um, a lot of uh, uh, restaurant chains and hotels uh, they. Um, they have all kinds of uh, uh, supposed you know, st- standards that they set themselves to supposedly ensure uh, safety of their food, and m- and many of the um, the outlets that they may buy from, like say the Costco's of the world, Costco has this, its own kind of uh, uh, regulatory system, and so every Farmer or every food producer that sells to Costco has to be inspected by Costco people and meet certain uh, regulations. Now, uh, and, and not only do they have to meet certain regulations, they have to fill out all kinds of forms just to, to, to get onto the list to be considered for um, uh, inclusion in the Costco system. And um, uh, so, this, th- these can be really uh, intimidating kinds of things for. Small food producers, small farmers that that, um, that don't necessarily want to go through this whole big regulatory process, but also don't necessarily. But want to they want to produce food kind of uh, uh, in in you know, the old-fashioned way, as it were, and they don't want to necessarily conform to having um, uh, you know all kinds of inspection stations and keep uh, all kinds of uh, detailed records on every you know. Uh, every single batch of food they make, uh, and, and all the kinds of things that are imposed by these kinds of, of regulations. So, I think what you're seeing is uh, a, a phenomenon not 
dissimilar to what's going on and you know among um uh food buyers uh people buying you know raw food or food from the farm people are are, are wanting to access uh recipes produced by chefs who aren't encumbered by all these regulations and they can can access good food and can and can, can produce it uh in in you know in in um uh, maybe traditional cookware and uh, in, 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 uh, under um, using uh, traditional recipes that aren't being uh, inspected or aren't being disqualified because they they they, they use they, they use the wrong materials that they did uh, you know, the wrong materials being materials that aren't suddenly aren't allowed anymore they 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 have to um, you know use stainless steel instead of clay or whatever whatever it is uh, they, they there are kinds of these kinds of things that. Uh, and I think you're, you're so you're seeing people um, kind of rebel against that, and uh, and so um, they're, they, they, they to do that, they have to kind of go underground. Um, and we've kind of walked around it a little bit, but one of the major selling points for all this oppression and all this regulation and all these inspections and everything is this overlying fear that oh, you know, if if the government doesn't do these things then we'll all get sick and die from all these terrible illnesses. Um, not long ago, uh, the government, actually I think it was the United States, oh it is, yeah, it's in the title. The United States and Canada got together and put out a thing called the Joint FDA Health Canada Quantitative, Quantitative Assessment of the Risk of Lystrosis from Soft-Ripened Cheese Consumption in the United States and Canada. And you know they put a lot of effort into some... It's, it's, it's listeriosis, I think, is what they were, yeah. Yeah. I think you, might, you said listerosis, but it, oh. just so you know, people know it, it's from listeria, right? A disease you can get from listeria. You, you know whenever they give something a title like that, that they, you know, they almost put more... They probably had more committees discussing the title than they had actually looking at the uh, at the data, but they claimed 160 times greater risk... In uh, in essentially raw cheese as composed as opposed to their government approved cheese, but during the time they studied, they, there in the U.S. there wasn't a single documented illness. And I'm wondering how you can say something is 160 times greater risk when the practical outcome is that there's there's no there's no illness to study there. I, I don't quite understand how they come up with a number like that. I don't either. I actually looked very closely at that study, and um, uh, it's it's really quite amazing what they did. I, I would I would characterize that study as um, uh, really bordering on the fraudulent, or, or really maybe maybe I'm being too kind um, because uh, what they they it's just uh, they they kind of like they knew what they wanted to say beforehand. But they, they they just needed uh, something uh, to, to quote prove their 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 the point they had in mind. Um, so uh, you know that's what is it? It's what's he saying? Um, uh, we know we know what we want. Uh, don't bother us with the facts. Um, you, you know. Uh, but uh, what they did was uh, they um, they went through the data. As you suggest, that, that, that uh, on, on listeriosis in uh, soft cheeses, these are like camembert and brie type cheeses, and uh, they they wanted to show that uh, these these cheeses 
which um, are, are when they're made from raw milk are um, are more dangerous than other cheeses. And um, now cheeses that are made from raw milk, regardless of what kind it is, have to be aged for at least 60 days. That's been a regulation uh, in place in the U.S. since about 1947. And it's, it's worked well. I mean, just by virtue of the, as you say, suggest there, there haven't been any documented cases of listeriosis and these soft cheeses in the U.S., nor in, any, in, in many other parts of the world. I think they did a worldwide uh, survey and they looked at all the research that had been done, and they really couldn't come up with very much. I think they came up with a couple of cases in Canada. They were cooperating with the Canadian government on this. And, um, uh, but even that was not a, you know, it was not a very uh, threatening uh, situation there in Canada by any means. I think there were two outbreaks over, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, whatever it was. And there are uh, there are illnesses from pasteurized milk. I mean, from excuse me, from cheese made from pasteurized milk. Not a lot, though. I mean, neither neither one. I mean, the whole, one of the things that's important to understand is that the whole dairy category is not an is not an area where there is a lot of illness, whether it's raw milk or pasteurized milk. So it's not like we're dealing with a any kind of really truly threatening situation, statistically speaking. But anyway, they did this. Um, so they, but they had this. Uh, they had this conclusion in mind. What they want to do is they want to change the this uh, 60-day uh, regulation. In other words, it's the requirement that the cheeses have to be aged for 60 days if they're made from raw milk. They want and, and they want to change that, and uh, they want to pro- they want to they want to probably lengthen it, which will make it if they make if they lengthen it, and they make it let's say 90 days or 120 days or six months, whatever. Uh, that the cheese has to be aged, that will pretty much do away with raw milk, brie, camembert, and the other soft cheeses because those cheeses uh, don't age well. They need to be consumed uh, as, as, as close to the time they're made as um, as possible. And in France, the, those cheeses um, don't have to be aged at all. And that's why the French make such wonderful raw milk cheeses because they are they're very fresh and uh, but anyway, our, our, we make, our, I mean, we have some very good cheese makers here that that have done very well with that 60-day uh, requirement. But they wouldn't do so well with a 90-day or 120-day or six-month requirement. So anyway, they they did so this kind of. And I'm telling you this kind of as background for what was going on here and what what the real agenda was or is. And uh, so they they couldn't find any any they couldn't find any data. So what they did was they went to they found a, a one study that had been done in. The U.S. Uh, I don't know six or eight years ago, that um, found that it was that I think uh, measured uh, pa- um, pathogens in in soft cheeses that were being sold at retail. Now um, it's a little different situation than than measuring cheeses as they come out of uh, cheese production facilities. But anyway, so that because this thing, they, because they didn't really have it, so they they took evidence from or the data from this particular study, which wasn't done for the purpose that, that, that they you know had in mind here, which was to prove that that uh, soft cheeses are dangerous. And they they, they I guess there had been uh, the, these this research had found um, not so much that people had gotten sick, but they found evidence of listeria. They did some some um, testing of the cheese itself. They were being sold at retail, and they found some listeria in some of the cheese. And they used that to um, compare uh, cheese that was pasteurized. And 
I think I believe in the same study, and it didn't show as much listeria. And so um, they came up and they they they, they did their their uh, the thing that they do so well, which is um, they 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 took the, uh, the the calculator and started multiplying and dividing and doing what ifs and uh, and uh, and um, you know, all kinds of um, uh, exponential type uh, you know workings and and um, and uh, came up with this uh, one. I forget what the number is, but that that. Uh, raw milk cheeses are 160 to some, you know, or more times more dangerous than um, pasteurized milk cheeses. And uh, so, you, when you, once you kind of understand that, uh, then you see that the headline was totally misleading. When you understand that the, the research uh, itself was based on a, a secondary, uh, a secondary study that really wasn't. Um, Uh, a, a figure that you really can't, you know, it, 
we keep we keep pretty close tabs of deaths in this country from and we and, we, and then you you have to have a cause of death and a death certificate and so um, uh, to, to suggest I mean, the number of reported deaths is in the area of 15 uh, from foodborne illness not 3,000 and and so what they're doing is uh, they um, they're they're manipulating the data and they're saying well that's just partial reporting and that's just uh, you know, certain parts of the country, and uh, it, 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 actually, these are all these are coming from state public health agencies around the country. But they're they're saying they're they're uh, they're, they're making all kinds of uh, mathematical computations that allow for what they say is underreporting and and um, uh, or um, you know misdiagnosis or whatever. And they're they're just extrapolating it many 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 times over and coming up with these huge numbers. And they're just—they um, they just. I, I'm, I'm convinced, having looked at this very closely, that they, there's there's just nothing to them. They're they're just totally out of bounds. But the media picks up on them as if they're fact, and it's really um, it's a, it's a, it's a, I, in my judgment, it's a scandal. Um, but there, as I said, there's so much um, uh, idolizing of these uh, these agencies uh, by the mainstream media that you aren't going to see too much in that area. And the media really is just not doing their job. You you see these headlines like that, and even if you watch some report on television or something, they're going to give you a minute and a half to two minutes and a half, which is barely more than touching the headline again. And there'll be some kind of sensational, you know, uh, emphasis on on a few key words that they want to really emphasize to you and and get you afraid of. And then they move on to the next story, and they never yeah, really well, get they'll, into they'll depth. Report, I mean, I, yeah, in this arena, they'll, they'll report on outbreaks. I mean, and there, are, there have been outbreaks. I mean, there, there, you know, food is not – there's no guarantees about food, and you can get sick from any food, and people do get sick. And uh, uh, so, you know, every time there is any kind of uh, significant outbreak, they just give a huge amount of attention to that as if it's, uh, as if it's a, uh, somehow indicative of a crisis. But um, it's not to say that those those illnesses shouldn't be taken seriously. But um, what they they do is they use that as an excuse to penalize everyone who produces food, and that's where the Food Safety Modernization Act comes out of uh, this, this supposed food safety crisis that we have, based on you know, 48 million illnesses and 3,000 deaths. And you know, but then when you, if we're finding out too late that it, those are fabricated numbers. And um, in the meantime, we have this, this new law here that's going to impact uh, a lot of small farmers. I, uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show with me. Let's give some shout-outs here to some websites where folks can find you and and your uh, uh, your stuff. We have davidgumpert.com, and I'll put a link in today's show notes for that. It's really easy to get to, just D-A-V-I-D-G-U-M-P-E-R-T.com. Uh, and just get over there, and there's buttons there. You can see his blog. You can see uh, how to buy his books uh, and and keep up with him. Also, in today's show notes, there's going to be links to Life, Liberty, and Pursuit of Food Rights and uh, The Raw Milk Revolution, uh, two great books. And there's going to be a link to the YouTube I mentioned with the Harvard Food Law Society's uh, debate on raw milk. And... Um, have I covered everything there, David? Is there? Is... That's pretty good. That's pretty good. I have a my blog is called thecompletepatient.com, and just the way it sounds. But uh, I'm glad you're doing that uh, link to the uh, to that Harvard Law School debate 
it's had something like about 30,000 views, which is pretty amazing for a debate about <laughs> raw milk. Um, but uh, there's a lot of interest and people want to know, and I think well, what the, the great thing about that debate is we finally... Uh, for once, and then you, you, know, you won't see it very, you won't see it again because I think they, they weren't pleased with the way it came out. But you, you see, um, uh, you hear from the other side, and the other side doesn't like to just like the debate in the open about these issues. And so, um, but that was because it was Harvard. I think they, the other side sent a couple people there, and um, uh, they couldn't resist the allure. And uh, uh, but um, I think you know people can decide what for themselves, who, who, you know, how it came out. But it, it, it's, 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 it's a very, um, uh, it's a unique kind of a, an example of a debate, uh, or as close to a debate as we're going to get. It really was more a discussion than a debate, but it was uh, at least can, people can kind of hear the opposing sides. Another way that uh, folks can uh, maybe interact with you, uh, you're going to be in Atlanta, Georgia, November 8th for the a Weston A. Price Wise Food Traditions Conference with Joel Salatin and Joe uh, Mercola. Right. There's going to be a debate on uh, GMOs and labeling of GMOs. And should, that should be very interesting. It's actually sponsored by the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund, and they're having uh, this debate just kind of as a prelude to the Weston A. Price Foundation Conference. My wife and I uh, have begun traveling in the South during the winter, and I don't know if we'll get uh, get down there that early or not, but uh, if we're anywhere around no- uh, Georgia uh, around November, we're, we'll uh, definitely try to get over there to that. That's Again, that's right. going to be November 8th, uh, the Weston A. Price, uh, Price Wise Traditions Conference. If you're anywhere near Atlanta, you want to look that up on the Internet and uh, get over there, and that could really be fun to listen to. I think, well, I think I'm going to be moderating that, so I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, David, I really appreciate you taking the time this evening and coming on the show with me. And I want to just extend an invitation to you anytime you uh, want to come back. Be sure and do that. I'll probably this. We're actually recording this uh, Wednesday night, folks. Uh, for those that are listening, and I'm not sure if we'll get it on the air Thursday midday, or it might have to wait until uh, Thursday afternoon. But um, one way or the other. Uh, David, if you if you ever want to get back on the show, just drop me a note or whatever, and we'll be sure and get you back on. And thank you very much for coming on tonight. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. And, folks, thank you for listening tonight, or I guess probably today that you'll be listening to it. And remember to visit badquaker.com, where liberty is our mission. Thank you very much, folks.